Thank you for being here with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. And more importantly, thank you for sending us. We have been your representatives from the Western Pennsylvania District for 38 years in the republics of Gabon and Congo. You know, John Piper once said, as Christians, we either go, send, or disobey. Negligence of the Great Commission is not an option. And so we thank you for sending us. We had the privilege of going. And you graciously sent us for these past 38 years. It's as if we were out on the limbs picking all the good fruit and you served as the trunk and the roots supporting us financially and prayerfully. And for this, we thank you. But today I'd like to share with us just a little bit about <clears throat> missions and in particular, one of the most important aspects which sometimes I think we overlook in our daily routine of coming to church and uh, living just sometimes a more religious lifestyle. And so I have untitled, untitled this message, The Great Commission, The Importance of Making Disciples. Now in Gabon, I led a course called How to Preach. And in this course, there are 10 lessons and the first seven lessons are about preaching, and the last three lessons are about interpretation. Well, I thought that kind of a bit reversed. I thought it uh, more important to be able to interpret the Bible before you start to preach it, at least correctly. In any case, one of the hermeneutical principles or how to interpret the Bible correctly that helps us interpret the Bible correctly is to keep things in context, as you know the old uh, adage, a text without a context is nothing but a pretext. But we also need to compare the scriptures with the scriptures. For example, in Matthew 7:11 and Luke 11:13, there are two verses that are almost the same, except for one phrase in each one. Let's compare them and you'll see the difference. Matthew 7:11 says, "If therefore wicked as you are, and by the way, I want to put a parenthesis in there, the word wicked simply means not consulting God for everything in your life. So sometimes we ourselves are wicked. We don't consult God. We don't ask him about certain things in our lives, and that places us in the wicked category. But it says, therefore, wicked as you are, you know how to good, give good things to your children. How much more will the Father in, who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Now, in Luke 13, 11, or 11, 13, it says, if therefore wicked as you are, you know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think you caught the difference. But if we read Matthew only without comparing or contrasting it to Luke, we can misinterpret the scriptures. Will not God also give good things to unbelievers who don't even ask for them? Doesn't God make the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? And if we read only Luke without comparing or contrasting it with Matthew, we can also misinterpret the scriptures. Have we not already received the Holy Spirit during our new birth? Why are we asking for him again? Has he left us? 
I thought we were already sealed for the day of redemption according to Ephesians 4.30. And therefore it says we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus would never leave or forsake us. So how do we interpret these passages? So when we compare them, maybe we can say that God wants us to ask first for spiritual things. This also fits well with the verse in Matthew 6.33 which says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things, speaking of material necessities, will be added unto you. But for a lesson today, I want us to compare or contrast two scriptures about the Great Commission to make a simple yet profound practical point. Let's read first Mark 16. Mark 16, 15, and 16. It says, Go everywhere and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Preach the good news. What's the good news? Well, Paul describes it succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, where he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, or the good news, which I preached to you, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, which we just sang about. If we only refer to the passage in Mark without comparing it or contrasting it to the other passage on the Great Commission, we will be doing what many are doing today to the, I believe, the detriment of the Great Commission, and that is to simply announce or preach the good news. Now, I'm not diminishing that in any way. But let's compare that with Matthew 28, which says for us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you even unto the end of the age, which I see approaching. When we compare this passage with that of Mark 15, we see that the scope is the same, that is, everyone, or more precisely, all nations. But this passage asks us more than preaching the good news and hopefully seeing spiritual babies born after hearing the gospel, repenting, and believing or placing our faith in Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection for our justification. Here, in addition, he asks us to make disciples. Thus the phrase, disciples are made, not born. So how? Well, it seems as if evangelism and spiritual birth are in first order, for we see he mentions baptism. You have to be born again before you're baptized, right? For water baptism is a physical representation of a spiritual reality mentioned in John 1 and 3. Jesus said, you must be born again. I was baptized twice because the first time I missed the born again part. And I missed the born again or born spiritually part because I hadn't repented. So the first attempt at water baptism wasn't a correct representation of the truth. 
until I got baptized again. After I repented, was born again. Jesus said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. But making disciples is more than that. It's to teach new believers, right? That's it, isn't it? Teach them. No. It says teach them to obey what Jesus commanded us. Furthermore, teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded us. And herein lies some big differences, and herein lies some of the church's weaknesses, in my opinion. Preaching the gospel so people can respond is like bringing a child into the world. It's a short and relatively unique period of time, but once the baby is born, that part is over, not minimizing the difficulty there, especially for the women. Um, <clears throat> But it's not the end of the story. These kids live thereafter. Unfortunately, some children have been raised well, discipled, but unfortunately, there are many who are not followed up on at all, and they become neglected, orphans, bandits, poorly educated, and, and worse. So after birth, the child's condition and future depends on the quality of the follow-up if there is any at all. Being task-oriented, I think we don't care mu as much about the product as we do the process. In a task-oriented world, which is the Western world, the person sometimes becomes less desirable than the task. Thus, much time-sensitive programs over people-oriented ministry. Well, Nine months and the baby's born, but it's another 18 years or more of properly raising a child who can become a productive citizen in the country instead of a welfare patient or worse. Yes, preaching the good news may be like bringing a child into the world. It's relatively simple, popular, but irresponsible if we don't intend to follow up this child well until he's become productive and independent in a sense. Until he's also able to produce in someone else the same qualities he received during his upbringing. It's very irresponsible to bring in a child into the world then and neglect it. It's even more responsible to bring several or many children into the world and neglect them. Believe it or not, in Gabon, I heard of a man who had more than 200 children. And I'm doubtful if he knew most of them, their names, let alone had any time raising them properly. Let me try to relate this to a spiritual sense. In Gabon, we were once involved in preaching to the great crowds, and thus the responses were great. We saw many responses, new births, spiritual births. But after this event, we noticed that there were not enough as of us as disciples already formed to do the necessary follow-up work to supervise these newborns. You see, Luke 6.40 tells us that a, dis a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And as Romans 8.29 states it, it's our goal to be conformed to the image of his son. 
So the results of our evangelism were many spiritual births, but few disciples. The people preached to and converted seemed mostly to disappear, having lacked enough spiritual parents who were able, willing, and uh, to follow them up, to teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded us. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort, and we sometimes don't want to commit ourselves to that long-term goal. So basically, we were only doing the work for the lo local cults. Because the harvest is great, it was like seeing a table full of food to eat. Our eyes became bigger than our stomachs, and we tended to bite off more than we can chew. Now, I want to ask us, do we think that Jesus, by modeling the great commission he gave us, showed through his own life and ministry an example of how not to fulfill correctly our part of the great commission? I don't think so. Do we think that Jesus, when he saw the unconverted crowds in Israel, panicked? Do we think he did like we did in Gabon, preach a little here, make converts, run to another town, make more converts, and so on and so forth without any follow-up? In Matthew 9, 35 to 38, we see that Jesus saw that the harvest was great. And he was going through the towns and villages preaching the good news, very important. So it's not that we shouldn't see the need to preach with an eye to seeing conversions, because there are many towns and villages, many neighbors and neighborhoods that do not espouse the gospel, do not have converts, nor churches, but let's continue. In verse 36, we read that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. But my question is, how did he see them? It says he saw them languishing and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? Did he say, let's go to Capernaum and preach there, see lots of converts, then afterwards run to Jerusalem, do the same, and so on and so forth? No. He found that there were a lot of unbelievers, but what did he say and to whom? He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but there are few workers. Therefore, pray the master of harvest to send workers into his harvest. He entrusted the work of ministry, <clears throat> evangelism, and discipleship to his disciples, those he had already formed. In the next verse, chapter 10, we read, then having called his 12 disciples, in fact, in verse 2, they were then called apostles or sent ones because they were ready to go. They were prepared. They were discipled. And then in verse 7, he says, as you go, and then in essence, do the ministry of discipleship. And in Mark chapter 6, we see the good results of these disciples or these apostles' ministries. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who are able to teach others also. And that word teach, I did a study of it in high school. It, it means to model. And you have to be with someone to model them. It's like a parent has to be there and model good practices for his children or they'll um, become like somebody on television. 
The old saying, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree is true. And it should be true about us. Now you might say, well, we have shepherds or pastors. Uh, we, may the, we may need to look again at chapter 10 of John and chapter 4 of Ephesians as the role of the shepherd or the discipler uh, because it seems we've strayed from that practice uh, of the model that Jesus used. I think sometimes we think that the pastor is supposed to do all the work, but the pastor is supposed to disciple you for works of ministry. You're supposed to be out there going and, and uh, discipling other people as well. For one, every convert needs to be discipled, but he also needs to become a disciple maker to actually make disciple real people with names. Now, if I were to ask you, are you a disciple? And I will at the end again. I need also to ask you, who are your disciples? And if you can't give me names, you don't have any. How many times we come to church and we do things, but it's just like shouting into the air. We're not targeting anyone in particular. And we're not monitoring their progress as well. So let's note, however, the most of Jesus' ministry was not with crowds preaching to make converts, as Mark 16 says. Number one, much of his time, the highest priority was to cultivate and maintain fellowship with his father. Secondly, the second priority, a high priority, was to make plenty of time with his disciples, training them to be like him, people-oriented over task-oriented. And of course, this is our goal, as I've mentioned in uh, Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of his son in all areas. And all, as already mentioned, every accomplished disciple will become like his teacher. So if we want to make more, if we want to be made more into the image of Christ, we must become his disciples. For every accomplished disciple will be like his teacher. Thus accomplished to further make disciples capable of going at least across the street to make more. Now, if we can't go across the street to witness and eventually build relationships to make disciples, we surely can't go across the sea. And as John Piper said, we either go, send, or disobey. Negligence of the Great Commission is not an option. So are we involved in this Great Commission here at home, let alone overseas? But the third priority, that less of importance in a sense, is to preach the good news to unbelievers. So we need to get our, keep our priorities uh, for our lives and ministry straight. So if number one, our personal relationship with God is not good, we really don't have anything to share with others. And we don't surely have anything to model. And this is what people are noticing. They don't notice what you say so much. They notice who you are, how you live, and so do your children. Number two, if we don't make disciples, we won't have others trained to multiply ministry and to fulfill the Great Commission, let alone do evangelism or preach the good news. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples was, go make disciples. He didn't say go sing in the choir, although that's cool, and we can use that as disciple-making and edifying. He didn't say do all the sometimes things we do in church every week. 
He told us to go and make disciples. It's interesting that the Gospel of Luke near the end tells us to remain in Jerusalem until you are invested with power from on high. This verse emphasizing the primary importance of our relationship with God above all else, and that's what we need to be constantly cultivating. The Gospel of Matthew near the end tells us to go and make disciples. This verse emphasizes the most important ministry aspect in, in the practical sense, making disciples, training citizens of the kingdom capable of continuing evangelism, multiplying ministry, and representing Jesus well to the world. But Mark's Gospel near the end tells us to go and preach. This verse, for me, emphasizes the importance of the gospel message. We don't need to change it. We can change some of the methods, but the message has to be the same. And that is repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, let me put a more finer point to it. Even if we could win 3,000 souls a day, as the Apostle Peter experienced on the day of Pentecost, through preaching the gospel, even if we could, could win 3,000 souls a day every day, 365 days a year, and even the great evangelists don't get those kind of results, but if we could, do you know how long it would take till everyone hears the good news? 5,000 years. And that's not even guaranteeing converts. It would have taken Billy Graham, for example, more than 5,000 years to preach and, and reach the present world population, not including its growth in the meantime. And he would only have had converts, not disciples per se. But I want us to be encouraged if only one person, like you, or like me, were to win only two other persons per year and during that time disciple them. And then those two would the next year win two others and so on and so forth. It would take only 45 years for not only the whole world to hear the gospel, but be discipled, thus fulfilling the Great Commission, which says go and make disciples. I wonder if this is what Paul might have had in mind when he thought that Jesus may come back during his lifetime. Why is it that we do so many things except intentionally make disciples? Why? I think we tend to revert to religion. We like to do things for God. And we come to church and we do our thing and we go home and watch TV or whatever we do. And then we come back the next week and we can't even remember what the preacher spoke about and we do it again and we do it again. And we're very religious, but we're not making disciples intentionally because we don't even know their names. I want to tell you a story about a very familiar character in the Bible, one that the three great religions espouse. Abraham. 
Now, Abraham was given a great promise to be the father of many nations. And um, he didn't have a son, and when he got the son, that became the most important, precious possession he had. And then God asked him to give it to him back, to kill him. But Abraham was so faithful and so committed to God and loved God so much that he actually obeyed God. And you know the whole story. But the point of that story is, is that God didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham. If he had Abraham, he had everything. And if he has us, he has everything. He doesn't want our things. He doesn't want our Sundays or weekends. Not even our most precious things. He wants us. And if he has us, he has everything. It's easy to give our things to God, a little money, a little time, but he wants us. And it seems like the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. Where are our hearts toward God and his great commission? I want to count one story as I close here. It's about one of our disciples in um, Gabon. His name was Antoine. Antoine was an average Christian. He, uh, when I became the pastor of this first church in uh, Ocean 2, I understood uh, Antoine's plight. He worked at a plywood factory and he was laid off because many times in the country of Gabon, the president's uncle from some podunk village is put as the president of the company and he just runs it into the ground and so everybody gets laid off. And it wasn't because Antoine was a bad worker, but Antoine got laid off. And so like many of the trained disciples that we trained, he was very responsible in trying to provide for his family. So after he was laid off, he went down island to plant pineapples to try to support his family. After a while, seeing that this wasn't adequate, he ventured out to a zone that the mission had targeted. But because the harvest was great and the laborers are few, we didn't have enough people to send there. But Antoine went there and just basically disappeared for two years. We didn't know if he had fallen off the end of the earth, he had lost his faith, abandoned Christ, what? But to our great astonishment and surprise, two years later, he came back and during our church service, gave the story of his life in those last two years. He said, the pastor, I became a very rich man. I planted not only one, but three plantations. And I have so much harvest that I, it's rotting before I can get it to the market. But not only did he say that, he said, Pastor, I also planted not only one, but three churches. And he brought back a converted witch doctor and we burned his fetishes after the church service that day. Now, we had spent about a year and a half discipling Antoine before he went off. 
But that was the type of results that came from a disciple that's followed up well. Our greatest work and successes in both Gabon and Congo were because we intentionally made disciples. I can tell you more stories like Antoine's story. Henri and Joyce Samutu, who now have an international ministry called New Sight. You can look it up on the internet. Uh, in the northern Congo, uh, they're building a medical complex um, there that's enormous. Sherman and Veronique Lububu, who are now heading up the orality ministry in coastal Congo because we spent time to disciple them. And others who have ministered in Gabon's political arena, others in ecological sphere in Gabon, and others who have become pastors, elders, deacons and deaconess, children's workers, and more. Any profession can be a platform for making disciples. I need to ask us again, what are we doing? Why are we here? Are we intentionally making disciples, thus fulfilling the Great Commission? Jesus only told us one thing to do when he left. Go and make disciples. So I'm going to ask you again, are you a disciple? And if you are, are you making disciples? And who are they? May God bless us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, so simple, so clear, but yet so convicting and profound. I just pray, Father, that you will help each of us to re-examine our lives. Help us to understand where we are in relation to you, where we are in relation to those in our network, and what we're doing in intentionally trying to make disciples of those you've given us. Give us grace, give us faith to step out and do the work you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.